Hello and a warm welcome to This Woman's Work, a space where you can hear and read about some amazing women, the fantastic jobs they do and the paths that have led them to where they are today. I'm here today with Fozia. Hi Fozia. Hello. <laughs> I got you off guard then. Oh, I did, I was like, ah, I, I just simply went in. What time are we on? Right, okay, cool. Um... Could you tell the lovely listener what it is you do for a living? Uh, so my name's Fozia. I am the chief exec of Magnitude Biosciences. Um, we are a Durham University spin-up. We're a start-up company. And uh, we do testing for medicines and nutraceutical products to help the healthy ageing industry. Healthy ageing? Interesting. Well, so it, and how much of that, This I shouldn't ask this question, is more directed to women then, if it's healthy ageing? It isn't actually. It's more about um, longevity has become quite a big buzzword of late. Um, Not least because there's quite a few uh, billionaires in Silicon Valley that have realised that they are ageing somewhat. Um, So there's been a lot of money that's been thrown into that industry as a whole. And it's not just um, health, it's about you know everything that can help facilitate all of us to have a better life later on in our years so it's not about adding years um to your life it's about adding life and it's not to about how years. you look it's about how your yeah, body how your body works. is functioning so it's about um healthy gut healthy cognition yeah providing you with um more mobility more mobility yeah um and just generally and it's not all focused on age-related diseases, because when I first stepped into the sector, I thought it was very much focused on diseases that yeah. are related to ageing. And they were like, well, no, actually, it's, it's beyond that. It's about how do we start uh, changing our lifestyles, what products we eat, how we live our lives to kind of you know, increase that um, period where we can do more with our life. Because if you, if you think back, just back to our, our generation, and, like, I remember as a kid thinking, you know, people that were in their 50s and 60s, they were so old. old. They're so old. <laughs> and if you look at people now, I mean, so many people that I know, and my family included, like, they, they're 60 years old and they're, they're running marathons and they're doing yeah. exercise. And, you know, within my own kind of social circle, I'm like, well, actually, that isn't old anymore. No. And if you look at the um, average age and the life expectancies globally, they're increasing. So really, our and if you look at our retirement ages and our pension ages, they're increasing, right? So we better be healthy for a lot longer and be able to work okay, for a lot longer yeah. if we need to live for a lot longer, but also be having a healthier life. Um, so it's not you know normal to accept that uh, our bodies are going to fall to pieces because actually you can prevent that. A lot of it's preventative. Before we go forward, we always go back. So little Fozia. What were you like as a child, school, college? Um, I was very quiet, would you believe? Very quiet as a child, very much an introvert. I was a bookworm. I was described as the uh, clever little bookworm. Oh. And uh, and this is, again, very stereotypical of South Asian parents. So she's the one that's going to be the doctor. Right, yeah. yeah. And I was like, and then I performed and I delivered and I am a doctor. So clearly that, that self-fulfilling prophecy worked. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I was very quiet as a child. I, were, I used to actively avoid sports and outdoors and I didn't want to learn how to ride a bike and uh, my parents didn't think that would be a critical life skill so oh she doesn't want to ride a bike well well, she doesn't she wants to go read a book go read a book yeah and my my uh, brother and my sister would be outside cycling and stuff and I'd be inside reading books and stuff um yes are you the are you the oldest no I'm the second ah so there's a sister older than me I'm I'm one of the middle childs right um yeah so I was always like always very studious always very lost in my own little world and I think it was probably in my teens or somewhere that I realised I needed to start speaking for myself. 
right. a little bit and I don't know when it was it was certainly I think around about the age of about 14 or 15 when I realized it I need to start speaking up or else I'm going to carry on getting walked over Okay. And I had to find my inner voice and my So did you have confidence. quite a nice group of friends at secondary, though? Because let's face it, secondary, I think pretty much everyone I've spoken to, there's been a couple that have really loved throughout all school, but there's most have kind of gone, you know, for whatever reason, bullying, various other things, you know, secondary is hard. I think secondary is hard. I think I probably... Oh, it's going back quite a bit. I probably <laughs> went on quite a journey. Because um, I think... You know, when you're quite studious as a child and you're in all the top sets and stuff, there's always a certain element of bullying. Oh, well, that person's the swat, that person's the geek. Yeah. Um, it was just part of who I was, so I didn't know any different. But I think it is when you do have a good group of friends around you. And it was interesting, actually. My group of friends weren't all from, like, the, the top sets or whatever. We were a very mixed ability yeah. kind of group of friends. It just sort of found each just other. Just found each other. Um, similar kind of cultural backgrounds as well. And I think that helped because I... So I was born in Huddersfield in Yorkshire and we were about, I was about two or three when um, my dad bought a business in Scotland and then we moved to Edinburgh. So wow. we grew up in Edinburgh and um, what was interesting about growing up in the, in the 80s in Edinburgh was that it wasn't hugely multicultural. So myself and my siblings were pretty much the only brown kids in the school. Yeah. And I think that inadvertently shapes you as a person as being othered. Um, and feeling different. And was it a big school? Or? It was not big. I mean, it was a very good school. I mean, and that's the reason my parents bought the house where they did, because it was a good school. Yeah. And it was all about a very, you know, good education. We, we come to this country to give our children a best, better start in life. Good education is, is a very important thing. And it was a great school, but they couldn't help geographically where we were. And that, yeah. that is what it was. And so I remember when we moved back down to Manchester... I was about 10 or 11 at that point and the reason my mum, my mum just never settled in Edinburgh, she just never felt like she belonged a lot of the family and the roots that we had were around um, Huddersfield and Manchester so she thought well that's a big city let's just go back there, down to there and it was a heck of a lot more multicultural and I remember just having this instant sense of belonging, of wow. not feeling that I was different and I think you as an adult I can now recognise that as a teenager you're hormonal you're growing, you're, you're feeling things, you're changing physically and and mentally and emotionally that these kind of things actually matter subconsciously more than you realize gosh yes um, and I remember just instantly that somehow there was a pivot somewhere inside me and I just became more naturally confident I was where I was if I didn't like something I would point it out and um, I would I would speak up about it and I was always like that at home and my mother's always said that to me she goes you were always a quiet, Very quietly stubborn right there was, there, was some, there was never something we could make you do if you didn't want to do it and you might not make a song and dance about it, but you definitely wouldn't do it if you didn't want to. Okay. So I've always had that quiet confidence, but that quiet confidence, I think, slowly became louder confidence <laughs> as, as you grow up. And I think yeah. that's just as you as you mature and, and as you realise. Exactly. I think as you find yourself and find what your path is going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think slowly became a louder voice in my teens and early adulthood. Okay, so quite clearly did very well at school. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm just going to go. Yeah. And then... Obviously, went on to college. I'm guessing did sciencey. Yep. So um, I I stayed in Manchester. Yeah. I uh, went to Manchester University, and uh, whilst I was on my placement year, I went to a couple of events because it was close to London. We went to this. Um, I think it was called a PhD Careers Fair. Oh. And it was one of those big ones held in one of those big exhibition centres in London. And it was really informative. It, for me, it was eye-opening. I was like, okay, well, there's PhDs. This is how you apply for them. This is how you get funding for it. You can get scholarships and everything. So I came back, applied for a PhD. I got a PhD at the University of Edinburgh in the medical college. 
um, and the requirement was that obviously I needed to pass my degree and then I was and it was a fully funded one from the Medical Research Council. Wow. Decent enough stipend. And yeah. So does that mean all you'd have had to have still had to fund your accommodation? Was that all funded? It was fully funded. I, I got a basic, I got I got a salary. Yeah, and in, uh, yeah. if you if you talk about it in today's terms, it's absolute pennies. Oh yeah, um, but, but at least it, it was you enough. Didn't have the debt of it. Yeah, it yeah. was enough, so it paid um, for the tuition fees and everything, yeah. and they also paid me a, a salary, if you like, per month that was enough for rent and food and bills and things, enough to kind of get by. Brilliant. And you were able to supplement that with teaching, which wow. is what I did. And you know, you have to remember this was all tax free, so I was like. Oh, bring in the money. You know, it, it was quite funny. It was the first time, you know, I had to run my own house and um, yeah. I, had, I had a flatmate and everything. It was quite, it was quite fun. And all I had to do was basically to get that, secure that funding was to graduate with the with a 2-1. And in the end, I got a first and that was fantastic. I did my PhD in three years. I wrote up in three months. And like just after my 24th birthday, I had a PhD. And I was like, oh, great. This is, this is great. I've got a PhD and now what? Then I did a bit of traveling, uh, applied for roles and things during uh, my travels and when I um, came back and the first week that I came back to the UK I had three interviews lined up wow. which was great the three interviews that I had on day one was this um, big corporate firm it was actually a tobacco firm mm-hmm. that's where the make scientists into leaders that's where that yeah. one was for us because interestingly they didn't say the company name because they knew people who wouldn't apply which is interesting ah. um, so that was so, so you had, didn't go to their head office then I know I went to their R&D site because when the job was advertised, I applied for it, submitted a CV, and then when I, people got back in touch with me, they're like, actually, it's with a tobacco firm. And I'm like, oh, okay then. But you still must have been curious enough well, to I was go. just kind of like, I would oh. be. You just I was just like, I was like, okay, I don't know if this is where I want my career to go. Because so the, um, but you want to know what their stance yeah. on it all is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it was three interviews in a week. So one was with um, BAT, one was with um, Novartis, uh, they're a drug. They're a pharmaceutical company at the time. They were based in Horsham, and then the other one was at a research institute, the NIBSC, which basically do. Um, it's a national institute for the biological safety of medicine, um, biological medicines like insulin and things like that. So okay. insulin and antibodies and vaccines. So they they did the safety testing for that, or did the um, certification for that, and it was three very distinctively different places. Yeah. One was a massive corporate company, um, that was a tobacco company for you know making very cash rich one was a pharmaceutical company and one was at a research institute um and it was a very interesting experience going to all three of those places in the same week bearing in mind i'd just come back from traveling was very horizontal very chill um wasn't really that positive i was quite happy you know slumming at a mom and dad's for a little while longer if i needed <laughs> yeah. to to get my to get my we had feet. a heavy yeah i'd had a heavy what, six five years or so. well no if you think about it for 24 at this point yeah it's eight from 18 yeah, that's six it's a lot, years yeah, it's a lot a lot a lot of time of uh, studying right um so i went there and uh, luckily enough for me by the following monday i had three job offers wow which was quite amazing i love the fact that you say luckily other than you deserved three job offers fuzzy yeah, and that, and that, but it, it was just oh, I was unexpected. So but again, as women, we're like, I'm lucky enough to have three jobs. Oh, you just bossed it. I smashed it. Yeah, that's right. That's what I did, Michelle. I, I smashed it and I got three job offers. But it was, it, I guess I'm saying luckily because I wasn't mentally prepared for it. You know, like when you're mentally you preparing for an interview yeah. and you're, you're swatting up and you're learning and you're learning about the company. I did absolutely squat. And I think that's why I'm saying it was lucky. Because <laughs> when you go into an interview, you generally read up on the company or figure out what they're 
you know, MO is and what their you know, yeah, vision yeah. and thing. My Googling was like an hour before the interview. I, got, I better find out what they're all about. Yeah, right? yeah. And I did that for both of them. And I've got a decent enough memory that I remember the key yeah. facts. So when they asked me about it, I was like, oh, I know you've done this in this country and this in this country. And okay. what's your thought about this? So that was just rapid thinking and learning on the, and talking on the spot. Um, and the decision that I then had to make was uh, which one of these was I going to take? And I was surprised by my gut feel. I wanted to go with a tobacco company. I was going to say, because surely the curiosity yeah. of that... And the reason was, that I remember, and this was purely from a very EQ point of view. Um, I like to think I've got decent EQ, and I, I, I listen to my gut quite a lot, yeah. because it always tells you something that your rational brain may not always tell you, right? Yeah. And I remember walking about an IBSC, and I was like, all right, sounds kind of all right, but it sounds a bit too samey. Right. And I remember looking at the people, and they looked very... Um, very much like it felt like a very much like an academic environment yeah, very straight it's very straight you, yeah. very very much like an academic environment not an environment where i thought i would thrive and then i went to novartis and everybody just looked miserable <laughs> like genuinely there was not a smiling face there well and i remember being at bat and we and it was a full-on assessment center so it wasn't just like a because the other two jobs i had, so just had to had, go for like a day I, just had, I had just had like little panel interviews and then you got shown around and then you left whereas at bat i was there for the full day it was a formal assessment center you had a panel interview you had a tour you had to do a talk you had to do an exercise you know and it was it was full-on because it was an interview for their graduate training scheme Right. Uh, but for the R&D facilities, so graduate trainees in R&D and the plan was that you would be a graduate leader in one of the managerial positions in R&D. And I remember just being on site and just it was just such a vibe. Yeah. People were happy. Um, there was a lot of smiling faces. Yeah. You could, I, I asked loads of questions. I got the answers that seemed satisfactory. And the other thing that struck out to me was the diversity. Right. Like in any one room, there was at least... 10 different nationalities Brilliant. and that really struck home with me um, because I hadn't seen that in any of the pharmaceutical companies that I'd visited to date at that point and I was like oh, this, this seems feel like this feels like more of an international place mm. and then I realized oh you know then I, I did accept that offer and then when I joined the company I realized that obviously because it was a global company secondments was a very commonly accepted things yeah. they had um they were present had a presence in 60 countries i can't remember how many um, countries they actually had offices in but quite a lot and doing a one-year secondment or a one-year placement in different offices around the world was a co- very commonly placed thing and they would do international assignments and they would um have people coming in from different departments globally to work together so on, people on are projects flying in and out there's people were flying in and out there was cross fun- cross functionality and that is where the diversity in thinking came from and i think for me that set the ground for diversity is really important and i'm not just talking about ethnic diversity here i'm talking about age i'm talking about diversity of thinking yes because i think that's one of the things up in these chats with women diversity of thought it's diversity of thought because i think whenever we talk about diversity people very automatically think oh are you talking about different colored people or or genders or something or genders or something and it's like or abilities even at the most diversity of thought Mm. and your diversity of thought comes from who you are as an individual what you what your beliefs are what your thought processes are what your upbringing has been what your exposure and your experiences so it's almost like saying oh well everybody from this part of the world think the same and we know full stop that is not accurate so how long were you there for then um so i was at pat for about six seven six or seven years in the main r&d function and then they created a spin-out company 
which was called Nick Adventures, and at that time it was all about electronic cigarettes were becoming a thing. Oh, yes. Back in 2010, yeah, yeah. 2012, something like that. And what was interesting is in all the years that I worked for a tobacco company, I never once touched tobacco. Um, ah. Because I worked in the R&D function, and yeah. the R&D function was all about open innovation. Obviously, I can't talk about the projects that I worked on, but it was all about open innovation. Right. So the, the conferences that I went to, the training that I had was second to none. Um, it really developed me as an individual because um, people are always like, oh, but you know, you, you're all about pharmaceuticals and you were like, you're going to go cure cancer and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And then you worked at a tobacco company. How did that work out? And I was like, you know, it is what it is. I graduated in a recession. I took the best option that was suitable for me. But that... But also that but is that, a billion, billion, billion dollar industry. Exactly. It's so and in terms was, of research money... Yeah, research money and... And just money to just do money stuff. To do stuff. And that the training that, I mean, at that moment in in time that was the best option mm. for me in my career and I still stand by that well also surely because there's an element there's obviously all of the human biology side of that mm-hmm. that relates to it but there's got to be a load of psychology that relates to it as well so it's mm. probably more than like I say one of those other roles might have just been very much about this is the box the that bio- you live yeah, in the biology yeah. side of it and that yeah. whatever you know what I mean for one of them sorry yeah. everyone for my crude terminology here but so much of smoking is psychological, isn't yeah. it? And tobacco industry is very much psychological. And, and there that... was so much research being done yeah. into that. And I think for me, it was quite informative. But also from a learning different skill sets, I was never, from day one, I was never put into a box. It, wow. I was on a graduate trainee scheme, so I was rotated around different departments. But that just became the norm then. I would work on cross-functional teams. I would lead cross-functional um, projects. I would be global. You know, one month I'd be in China, the next I'd be in America, the next I'd be in Switzerland. And for somebody who'd just graduated, you know, it was just me. My other half, he was still finishing his PhD in Edinburgh. So I was just essentially young, free and independent. Oh, my I, it didn't. It didn't matter where I was in the world. And I, I think I really relished that freedom. It was fantastic. Travelled quite a lot. Um... So, and then by the time it got to, to Nick Adventures, um, we were getting married, and that was in London. And then I joined that spin out there, and then we, then we moved to London. And I think it just got to the point where we as a family were like very ready to leave London. And, there was, and I always tell people this story of an epiphany on, on a train being eight months pregnant, but really it was before that. Um, but it just got to the point where I was like, I'd be eight months pregnant. I'd be getting the commuter train from like Surrey into London. Nobody would give me a seat. And I'm like, why are we here? Like his family was in Ireland. Mine was in Manchester. I was like, why are we living in London? This is not where we want to raise our family. What are we doing here? Um, and there was movements happening around in the company that I worked in at that time as well. So it just felt like the right time to start making noises. And because I had graduated first, um, we'd always kind of followed my career yeah. around the country. And when I was pregnant with my littlest, uh, my daughter, it was a case. And I said to my husband, I was like, well, okay, you find a job and we'll move. I'll find, you know, my jobs, I've got flexible enough skills that will find something yeah. for yeah. me. Yeah, you were confident enough yeah. now when you're... In I was your... like, yeah, one of us had to be, had to have that kind of um, flexibility in their career path, whereas my husband was an academic, is an academic, and, you know, academic careers come up in universities, so you have to go to a place with a university. Yeah. Whereas I was like, there's companies everywhere, I'll find a job somewhere. And uh, we basically did anywhere but London move. Brilliant. And it was, uh, right, find a job, we'll, we'll go there. And my husband, he got the he got offered the job in Newcastle, and neither of us had ever been to Newcastle. Our knowledge of Newcastle was that's where the train from Edinburgh <laughs> goes through, and isn't that where the angel thingy is? Yeah, yeah. Right, and that that was it. Yeah. <laughs> that was the knowledge that we had. I remember, like six months in, we were like, okay, do you know what? We like this. This is nice. It's a big enough city. 
that you've got enough stuff to do. Newcastle's a good city. Yeah, it's a big enough city, it's enough to do, but it's small enough in that 15 minutes I'm at the beach, 15 minutes I'm in the city centre, 20 minutes I'm in the middle of nowhere in the countryside in Northumberland. This is amazing, what's not to love? And the community and the people just felt a lot nicer. Yeah. Because I think where we were um, in Surrey, it was very much... um, it was, <laughs> it was on the commuter belt. It was on the well, yeah. It was. Sorry. I think it was. It was, it was, it was on the commuter belt. It was yeah. on the commuter belt. Majority of people that were there were there for jobs. It was very. Uh, there was a lot of childcare available. You were paying through in the your nose for it. Um, yeah. There was a lot of nanny culture. I mean, literally, there was. Look, you'd go to baby groups and it was just full of nannies with yeah. babies. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be like on mat leave, going, "All right, I'm going to meet other mums. No, I'm not going to meet other nannies." Um, and I think we were very kind of ready ready to leave, but it worked out. And then I think about six six months or so months later, then um, it just made sense for us to make a full-on formal commitment because we were just renting place. And then once people that I used to work with then realised that I wasn't going to go back to that workplace, the word got round, oh, Fozio's leaving London. And um, there was a couple of suppliers that I worked with in my last role that I heard, oh, well, we hear that you're moving north. Yeah. We're north. And I was like, oh, no, I'm moving north and north. I'm moving to Newcastle. You guys are in Leeds. And they called me up and said, look, we are expanding. We've always really liked working with you. We're expanding. Would you like to come and have a chat? And I remember saying this to my husband. I was like, they want me to have a chat, but they're based in, like, Skipton somewhere. We're in Newcastle. He goes, go and have a chat. See what happens. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? And um, it it was interesting conversation. They were expanding their... Um, business. They were a CRO, another service provider to um, pharmaceutical and, and industry, and you know, obviously the tobacco and nicotine industry. And can- they did some quite a bit of work with cannabinoids as well. And um, they said we need to expand the, uh, our company. We want to start a function that works on regulatory projects, that works on um, putting together dossiers to the MHRA and to the FDA, focused on firstly nicotine products and then expanding. You've got a very unique skill set in the kind of nicotine industry. Yeah. Would you like to come on board and grow this? Online? So they'd obviously have this thing that they wanted to do. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you appeared. I appeared. And they, they maybe they, didn't know how to make that happen or yeah, whatever. Yeah, and they, they, I, I came on their radar and they're like, okay, this is the kind of person whose skill sets we need. And I'm like, well, that's all fine and dandy, but you do realise I'm based in Newcastle and I won't be relocating to Skipton anytime soon. And I've got a young family. Like, at that point, my baby was one years old. My son had just was three and a half. And they're like, well, we think we can make it work. Um, have you heard of this thing called Zoom? And this is 2019. Right? Ah. And they're like, have you think, heard of this thing called Zoom? And I'm like, no, pray tell. What is Zoom? <laughs> what is Zoom? What is Zoom? They're like, oh, it's like WebEx, but way, way better. Yeah. It just works. And it worked. And it worked quite well because I would have like two really focused days in the office, back to back meetings. And would you sit overnight when you were there? I would, yeah, overnight. I'd stay there overnight or occasionally. Yeah. So I would, I would actually oh, only shit, occasionally nice do. You've got young kids as well. <laughs> it was, it was. And I'm not going to publicise that so much, but it was lovely to have a nice yeah. night's sleep. Um, so I would do that. And, you know, more often than not, it ended up being like one full long day rather than having to do overnighters. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, I would work in my home office in Newcastle, Brilliant. just zooming into stuff because it was, and I think it was quite. At that time, there was a lot of strategic stuff that needed to be done. I needed to grow a team. I needed to recruit people. I needed to grow the strategy. And that was nicely done kind of remotely. And I mean, like, I, I grew the team from like two or three people to about 45 by the time I left. Um, but it got to that point where I think for myself, I just got kind of tired of working, seeing my colleagues in small squares on the screen. And bearing in mind that we'd been in Newcastle for about three years at this yeah. point, I had no networks or no idea of the life sciences landscape in the northeast full stop 
all of my connections were London, mm. South, South London based and abroad. Mm. They were global. So I knew people in, in Germany and America and Switzerland, but I didn't know of a Scooby about what was going on in Newcastle and beyond. So I, I made it a little mission to kind of get to know people. Okay. In Newcastle, I started going out to networking events. I started speaking to people. Brilliant. I started chatting to, because I'd made a lot of like, um, I, you know, because I was on mat leave and I did have young children, I, I, I made a lot of mum friends from like, you know, the baby groups and buggy fit and all these kind of stuff. So I had like a group of friends that I just used to talk about normal life stuff. And then I started talking to them about career stuff. I was like, like ladies, help me out here. What is here in, in Newcastle? Yeah. Um, and I was very lucky. I've got a very diverse group of friends and they were like, oh, well, there's this thing and there's this thing. Have you heard of this person, that person? It's always and, you know, what started, industries there, Yeah, isn't what it? industries yeah. were available. And they, you know, it started off from my group of friends and they just started connecting with me with people. And I had coffees around all the coffee shops around Newcastle with people that I'd never met before. And I still try wow. and do that at least like you know one day a month I'll go and meet people that I don't know and and for me there's it's twofold it's increasing your own network and understanding who's around but it's also trying to give back a little bit about what you know as an individual and I think I'm at that point in my career where that's quite important to me as well yeah I would like to give back to what I have learned and give back to the community give back to younger um, people in their career um, other women in their career and you know again you can't be what you can't see. I think I very much stand by that. Oh, I um, like that. That is a t-shirt waiting to happen. Oh, I'm probably sure it's a t-shirt somewhere, right? I'm pretty but sure. No, I'm going to make so. it. <laughs> uh, but it is true. You can't be what you can't see. And if you think about it, really, it's only been in the last ten or fifteen years where these kind of stories about celebrating female empowerment, about celebrating female leadership understanding that actually in female-led businesses, female-led startups, you only get a fraction of the funding available to male-led startups. And those statistics are out there now. Oh, my the, God. The statistic is like that. 2% or something. It's really depressing. Um, but it, those things... Are, the same funding. Female-led businesses, female founders, get 2% of the VC funding available globally. That's the stat. <gasps> it's depressing. I don't know if I want to know that. I know, it's when you realise that. And like, well, hang on, we're still doing There's all right. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. But the fact is that it's now been spoken about. Mm. And recognising the elephant in the room is a first step to doing something about it. So there's been a lot of um, progression in the last 10 years alone. Just In just being able to talk about it, identify these things as a problem, only then can we start addressing it. Mm. So I think it's, you know, it is it's important to kind of recognise that mm. and to start addressing that. So, yeah, I started going out to all these events and getting to know people. And um, bearing in mind my background up until this point has been very corporate, very cash-rich companies, very stable careers and stuff. Even in the consultancy, the consultancy firm that I worked with had been around for about 10, 15 years, so mm. very stable. And um, I met up with some uh, a local VC firm, and they were like, um, really got on with them, really liked them. And I thought, well, I'm looking for new opportunities. If you do think of anything, this is this is my repertoire, these are my skill sets, and I'd really like to feel like I belong to the Northeast. I want to give back to the Northeast because I think Aww. it's a I think it's a fantastic region. I think it is neglected and ignored. I, yeah, so I spoke to one of the the VCs, and they were like, "Have you ever thought about um, Have you ever thought about leading a startup? Because we've got we've got a startup that's in need of um, somebody, a commercial leader who can take it to the next stage of growth." And I was like, "Right, never considered that whatsoever." Um, yeah, well, well, yeah. What's it, what's it about? Yeah. And then I started having chats with the guys here at Magnitude. Really liked them. Came here for a day, met everybody, and. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I was like, this is somewhere that I can really add some value. Um, I can have some autonomy here. Um, I, there's, there's an opportunity here to really shape something. I know you.
of innovation. I heard that phrase somewhere and I was like, that's really true. That very like cutting edge where it can go anywhere. Yeah. Ooh. And um, being able to be in that place, it's exciting, it's yeah. novel, it's new. Um, it's also very scary. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got all these people's um, mortgages relying on you, making sure that you can run a company. And uh, I remember when, um, so when I was being, you know, spoken to about magnitude and stuff, and I, I had uh, meetings with every single board member separately. So there was no formal interview as such. I just had really long meetings with every single person individually. And it was casual chats, but obviously there were interviews, right? So they were yeah. in like coffee shops or over Zoom or whatever. And it went on for about three well, the first time I spoke about this place was March, April, and then I didn't sign a contract till about July. Oh, wow, right. So, yeah. But then equally, Three you're or working full-time at the same time, Yeah, you, but it was, so. it was a big decision for them and for me. Um, you know, they were going to bring in a CEO. Yeah. And I was going to take on a very new role and break, take on the responsibilities. I needed to make sure that it was a fit for me and I was a fit for them. So I appreciate the big decision. Yeah. And you would go around the houses for a you know a very significant role like that so um yeah it took a while and I think it is a big challenge and I have taken it on but it is very very different yeah very very different to anything I've ever done before and I'm very lucky that I've got a good team around me and I've had the flexibility to build Brilliant. and the freedom okay. to build a team around me yeah um but it's definitely been a learning opportunity but if you're very solutions focused and yeah. action orientated mm-hmm. That really is quite a CEO mentality, isn't it? It's yeah. like, you know, like, okay, this is where we've got to get to. Yeah. How do we get there? Let's not talk about, you know, I'm not going to go off on theories. We're going to get, you know, proper action plans. And is that, because obviously the couple of the questions that I always ask are generally things like, you know, what inherent skills do you think you have mm-hmm. that make you quite good at this? Mm-hmm. And I think I could already tell there's a number that you've got, but I think, you know, from what you've described, just wanting real solutions yeah i mean i am very action focused yeah i'm I'm all about the right how are we getting to this i understand the problem now what's the solution what's the pathways to the solution how are we going to get it give me a measurable time so so when you've just said action driven it's almost like you've been speaking to my team because one of the things very early on in my career I, i had a manager she was fantastic and um she always used to um state so what to me Oh, and uh, and it was interesting because I remember I presented. I mean, I kind of pride myself on putting together really good slide decks. That is what I do. Oh, I don't write publications. Yeah. I don't write publications anymore. I don't like papers anymore. But I love a good slide deck. Yeah. Right. So I remember showing her my first slide deck. We were going. It was a project meeting, and she's like, "What's that title mean?" I was like, oh, "It just says results." She goes, "What are the results? You know, what, what so what? You've got." I was like, "It's in the graph." I was like, "That needs to be the headline, Fozia. The so what? The person in the room should read that headline and know exactly what that slide says. Yeah. It shouldn't be death by PowerPoint." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, and that, you know, inherent." I didn't even realize how much that had become my inside mantra yeah. because I literally say that to my team on a daily basis now. And I'm like, why are you telling me this information? What are the key so bits? What? Yeah. What's so the what? key? Why yeah. do I know? Do I need yeah. to know this? Yeah. No, if I don't need to know this, you crack on come to me if there's a problem or you need to make a decision or what's the decision that we're making yeah. things on and it is very action focused and I, I do like deadlines I do like measurable things because unless and I and my my I don't know if this is a character flaw or not but I work best under deadlines oh and it, under I do pressure. Need, under pressure I need the fear I need to know that this needs to be done by x amount otherwise it won't get done it surprised me how much of a CEO's time is spent looking at numbers and accountancy and balancing the books 
because to me, when I was considering the job, I was like, oh, it's strategic growth, it's expansion, it's marketing, you know, it's big picture world stuff. domination, yeah. big picture stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, no, you're going to be stressing about monthly payroll as well. Yeah. And making sure, and we do, we have monthly board meetings. And I remember at the beginning, that was like the bane of my life. But actually, it's really important to keep us on track. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, what are we reporting? What's the month end look like? What does the year end look like? Are we meeting our targets? Are we not meeting our targets? And I think... Because if you're not, you can't do the other stuff. Exactly, exactly. You know, one can't happen without the other. And I I like to think that that's one of the key things I've brought to the company is that mentality shift of we are a business. Yes, we're a university spin-up, but look at us. We are not physically in a university anymore. And I feel like in the last year, like I literally have not stopped. Because and, now you're um, in this really, the pace is the properly pace going. The pace is it. Yeah. And it's, it's a running joke at home when we talk about the the reason we left London. Because one of the other reasons we left London is that my job was very intense there. You know, I was working in the city. I would work long hours. I was travelling quite a bit. Then I put a stop to the travelling. But I was still working in fairly high-pressured role, expected to deliver. And one of the things was like, you know, I would drop my son off to nursery at about 7.30 in the morning, pick him up at about 6.30 in the evening... I'd see him for about an hour and then put him to bed. Mm. And I remember thinking, like, because both my husband and my mum, they were both stay-at-home mums, 100% always at home. And I knew I didn't want to be one of them, but I still wanted to be a present parent. Yeah. And I used to have this persistent guilt. And, again, I think this is very... It's certainly in, my, in, my, in our home. It's, it's a gender-specific thing, because I have mum guilt. Oh, God, My yeah. husband does not have dad guilt. No. He's like, oh, suck it, and they'll be fine. Whereas I'll be like, you know, if I see my child's crying face in the morning, I'll see that for the whole day. Yes. Because um, when I used to drop my son off, and I think a little bit of it is like your precious firstborn, right? Uh, when my son was born, and he would like literally cling on to me yeah. when I'd drop him off to nursery. Oh, and he would cry, that. and he'd be like, and he'd be like, no, mama, no. And you know, that lovely little baby voice. And that was it. And I would like be sobbing, dropping him off, and I couldn't get on the train to work. And at work, I'd be thinking about it, I'd be calling the nursery, and they're like, he was absolutely fine. Ten minutes after you left, he's playing in the sand pit now. He's doing this, he's doing that. Yeah. And I couldn't function. And my husband's like, you've got to stop dropping him off. I'll do the drop-off. You go to work. Yeah. Um, and oh, it was absolutely good. fine. And I was like, uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, he never does that with me. Cause, cause, and I'd be like, it's because he loves me more. <laughs> um, he, I'm his mummy. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of leaving London was that so I would have a better work-life balance. And here we are, you know, five years later, and you're like, and my husband's like, do you remember that work-life balance you talked about? <laughs> do you remember that bit? He goes, I'm still, like, um, doing the heavy lifting. And he's, you know, he's fantastic. And he does do the heavy lifting. And he is my rock. And he he has enabled me to have the career it's that teamwork, I have. Yeah. But it, it's hard, you know. And it's not to say that we don't have our ups and downs. But we both work full-time. We don't have any family support. Up you have to, yeah, we, we rely on childminders. We rely on friends, you know. Um, it, and it is it requires a hell of a lot of life admin. Yeah. to sort out who's doing what every day of the week and trying to kind of spend time and then with the family. And when kids are sick. And uh, yeah, and when kids are sick, you have to be responsive and be able to do that and be that present yeah. parent. As much as I balance it, and you know, it's on it's on me to balance it, but I've never missed a sports day, I've never missed a kids' performance. So, you wow. know, I, I do prioritise, and they know that they are, my children know they're 100% more important to me, and I will try and make it wherever I can. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, they're seeing a great role model. yeah. They're seeing that their mummy is out there. And, you know, there's, I was, like, in the paper once, and there was a few um, articles and, and newspapers and things like that, and I showed up. So, oh, look, that's mummy. And I think it's nice for them to see that, because um, I talk about feminism at home, and, I'll, you know, there was a, you know, like, as for my children, I want them, diversity to be a, 
to be a thing for them. So we're in a multicultural household. My husband's Irish, I'm from Pakistani descent. And it's very important for me that the children see both sides of those cultures. Yeah. So we, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Eid, and they get presents on both sides. And they yeah. get Christmas, and they're the most spoiled children in the world. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're lucky and they recognise that. And, um, you know, it... it I felt like I'd done half a decent job when once, uh, I think it was last year or something, my son said to me, he goes, oh, we're very lucky, mummy. And I said, why is that? He goes, because when you were little, you only celebrated Eid. And when daddy was little, he only celebrated Christmas. But we get to do both, so we're very lucky. And I was like, I've succeeded. This yeah. is what I wanted the kids. Yeah. I never wanted them to feel confused or stuck between two cultures. I they wanted see, them to realise massive, amazing. It's this amazing cultural love fest, yeah. that, and that is what they needed to see. And I never yeah. want them to feel like they have to choose between it, um, or feel like they've ever been, um, uh, you know, that they're othered or anything like that. And I think that's yeah. something that's really important to me because when we moved to Newcastle, and I like the fact how multicultural it was because originally when we moved to Newcastle, my friends um, who were from like northeast and stuff, they're like, oh, you know, Pontylan's lovely and Morpeth's lovely and that's quite nice. And then I went to those places, oh, this is lovely, but they're very white dominant. Yeah. And I want my kids to know that it's it's normal to be mixed and, yeah. and dif- again, diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of thinking, all, all of that is really important. So, that's another reason why I, I really like Newcastle. What do you think your and I don't like the phrase like negative traits, but mm-hmm. anything you have that I, that you that's made your job or your career difficult? Um, I think being a female leader, you're always going to have some element of imposter syndrome. Yeah, and um, and it's interesting because I think the career path that I've had, especially starting my career in the tobacco industry, where it was, let's be frank, full of male dinosaurs. Just men, yeah. Um, and those that were very set in their thinking as well, that by default I had to be righter than right, surer than sure of what I said. Right. Um, very, very often I would be the only female, the youngest person. Because again, you know, I got my PhD quite young, so I was on the graduate scheme. I was one of the youngest persons on the graduate scheme. And in the end, I got fast-tracked off it. It was a two-year scheme. And I got fast-tracked off it after 10 years, and they gave me a permanent job and a, a proper project. And that was like, <gasps> who is this person? Yeah. And then it, Although it's something to be celebrated, it almost becomes a noose around your neck because everyone's kind of judging you against that as well. But, you know, I'd be the only female, the youngest person, the only person of... Asian descent in the room in like boardrooms and being very conscious of that being made to feel very conscious of that as well Um, and I think that kind of you try not as you mature and as you get older you try not to let um, cultivate any of your ways of working but inherently I think it does yeah uh and but i think i'm at that stage in my career almost you over explain yourself yeah over explain yourself and i think i at this point in my career i call it out very readily and i genuinely don't care if it makes people uncomfortable yeah because even to this day and age i've had people say to me oh like so where are you from and that is such a people don't realize how offensive that term actually is you don't ask it and um now i've got to that point where it's like would you like to know where I live? Yeah. Or why I'm brown? Yeah. And uh, when as soon as you say that to a white person, they get really uncomfortable. They're like, yeah. they get the sweats. And I say, oh, so that made you uncomfortable? Yeah. Good. Yeah, because you you've made me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. because I'm, I'm educating you and what's okay and what's yeah. not okay to yeah, say. Yeah. Um, so I think I, I call those kind of things out. Um, but yeah, I think imposter syndrome hits hard. There was an article that I read a little while ago and it said, 
imposter syndrome is good because that means you're feeling it because you're trying something new yeah. by trying something new you're challenging yourself and giving yourself a new skill set so don't always think of it as a negative thing it's just your inner fear coming up because it's something novel and new you've never done before but isn't that what you want to do isn't that ambition and growth and if it, if I look at myself as an individual I was like well that is what I want to do I'm not the kind of person that can tread water I'm not the kind of person that can be stagnant so that it is it, implicitly it's the fear and the fear is actually a driver so it's not a negative thing so you can you can call it negative but in reality it's how you spin it into a positive that these kind of weaknesses that you have and and, you know other skill sets weaknesses that I have for me it's all about building the team around me I'm all about having a team around me that is way way better than me right they should always be smarter than me at this 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 and this I'm going to be a nice little generalist because you've got to be as a CEO. I've got to be the generalist. Yeah. I've got to be the person who understands enough to be dangerous, enough to get enough people interested, and then I wheel in the experts in. And this, yeah. is, this is your person. This is who you need to speak. But I need to, because I'm leading from the front, I need to have enough knowledge of certain things and enough confidence to be able to speak in certain rooms to get us noticed, Yeah. to get myself noticed. And I think one of the things that I've realised over the last year, that when I'm talking when I'm doing marketing exercises, when I'm doing PR, it's not just PR for the company, it's PR for myself as well. And by default, that raises the PR of profile yeah. of, of the company. And we were talking about the North East region and at a round table, um, I think it was one of the local VCs that said that phrase that, you know, as the North East as a region, we need to work together mm. to raise us as a region because the rising tide will raise all ships. And, and I'm like, actually, that's a beautiful phrase. Mm. I've never heard that before, but I think it's beautiful because yeah. it's very, very true. Um, and it's lovely because it's collective. It's collective. It's, it's, it's community. Bigger. Yeah. It's united. Yeah. It's not. We're not adversaries. We're all, we're not all in, in this our, together. Just doing our own thing and kind of. We yeah. don't need to be on our own little bubbles. And I think there's not that many um, companies, certainly startups in the northeast, that are directly in competition. Well, they might be in similar spaces, but we're not in direct competition. And even those that are, we do actually work quite collaboratively because you're better, you're stronger together than than divided. And I think the more people that realise that, the I think the less segregated we'll, we'll, we'll be as regions as well. Mm. I almost want to end the podcast on that, but I'm not. <laughs> so I've got three more quick questions. We're going yeah. to whiz through them. So one, what's next? Career-wise then, what's next? So you're going to carry on doing this. Where is that going to take you? What's next? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Like I said to you, I mean, my career has always been a process of elimination. Don't fancy that. I don't fancy yeah. that. I'll have a chat. I'll have a go, uh, attempt at that. I'm not sure. Um, I think I love where I am right now. I'd like to take this company from strength to strength. But as a startup, the ultimate plan always is an exit. Yeah. And when you exit, the first person to go is going to be the CEO, CEO. right? But, but that is success. Yeah, I know. Success for me it's looks weird, like being able to fire myself, yeah. basically. Yeah. And I'd like to get it to that point. And at that point, I'm not really sure. I think um, let's see how I come through, come yeah. out of all of this and um, how uh, exhausted or inspired I am by this entire so journey. So technically it could either be another startup. It could be another startup or I, I start... Rest. Or rest or maybe start doing some more advisory stuff because yeah. I think I really enjoy um, uh, motivating other people. Yeah. I, I really enjoy uh, mentoring and empowerment and everything and really being that, you know, you can't be what you can't see and I'd really yeah. like to do reach outs into communities and stuff to be able to do that. When Before I, I joined uh, Magnitude, I used to do quite a bit of mentoring right. um, into, and there's, a, there's an organisation called the Girls Network. 
and it's all about mentoring girls who are from underprivileged backgrounds or who wouldn't have the opportunities um, in usually in their GCSE years in school and they partner you up with um, girls in your local schools or whatever and it's, wow. and it's a national program and it's fantastic and the lady that um, started it off she's amazing two final questions then what advice would you give to your younger self so maybe that quiet believe in yourself Believe in yourself and be more confident. You're smarter than you think. Uh, and I think that feedback that... I think it's becoming more normal now. Um, giving feedback early on to young children, not just young women. Um, to give them the confidence to proceed. To give them the confidence to kind of like... You know, when they're second-guessing themselves. Yeah. And you know, it's very delicately done. And I see that with my own kids. That like You want to... Um, give them that feedback without kind of being patronising, without mm. taking away their learning journey because you need to fall and learn and get up yourself and dust yourself off and, and start again to be able to do that. But I think believe in yourself. Um, I think that is probably the advice I'd give to my younger self. Don't be scared. Be confident. Believe in your abilities because somewhere out there is a mediocre man thinking he's smashing it. <laughs> Every second of every day. Indeed. <laughs> Amazing. Um, final question then. What is some life advice to throw out into the world for everyone? What life advice would you want to impart? Could be on women or just on anyone. Oh, well, life advice. Um, I think live, live your life and don't be afraid of the naysayers is probably life advice that I would give. Um, because if you constantly start judging your own life um, plans or... Uh, visions and stuff based on what other people will think you're going to get nowhere yeah there's always going to be naysayers but uh it's and it's easier said than done to ignore those naysayers because if people say things they do affect you they do impact you but it's um don't listen to those that you wouldn't take advice from i think is probably the key thing and i think that's how i've learned over the last few years if you wouldn't take advice from them would you take their criticism no yeah. Then that means their opinion's not valuable enough. Yeah. If you wouldn't take it, if you wouldn't go to them for advice, then really, they're just not. Their opinion just doesn't really matter because that's always yeah. going to happen. It's all, you know, how easy is it to criticize? We know that as humans itself, it's just human nature, isn't it? Yeah. We'll open up the paper, we'll re listen to the news or whatever, and it's so easy to say, oh, God, well, they, they should just do this, shouldn't it? It's so simple. But you don't <laughs> know what's going on on the other side. You don't know what's going on in terms of what they're, what else they're dealing with, what other kind of hurdles and battles people are going through. Mm. But, um, follow, so follow your truth and do what you can. But try not to be detracted too much about what other people will say or think about you. And there's one phrase actually about my lot um, now, I think it needs, needs to be on a tote back, is. Uh, Shy bands getting out. Say that again. Shy bands getting out. Oh, it's a very, very Geordie yeah. term. Yeah, it always sounds quite Scottish as well. Shy bands getting out. Yeah, um, I think it was. Uh, I was in. A, I moved up to Newcastle and I was in one of the Asda's and uh, you know where it says baby aisle. It didn't say baby. It said burn. Did it? I, I took a picture of it and sent it to my friends down south. I was like, look at the baby. Look at how I'm so Geordie. Look at me. Um, but it is. I think it's true. I think. Being shy doesn't get you anywhere. And I guess 14-year-old me realised that. Yeah. And started speaking up, speaking up for herself. Thank you very much, Fuzzy. Oh, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. If you would like to hear more about this chat, see some pics and read about how to get started in this industry and or this role, then please go to our website, www.thiswomanswork.org 
The link is on this podcast page and across our socials. Sincere thanks.